come to a bit of a transition this morning in the book of Matthew. Uh, we are in chapter 9, starting at verse 35, and we'll work through chapter 10, verse 16. That's page number 1510 in the Pew Bibles. And here we begin to see uh, Jesus' ministry expand, and uh, we're not going to get into too much of this aspect this morning, but really this is uh, Jesus laying down the foundations of the church. Hear the word of the Lord. Oh, I'm in Mark. <laughs> That's not going to work. I saw the M and I thought, hey, we're good to go. Okay. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they went harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field, he called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or staff, for the work, worker is worthy of his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. This is the word of the Lord. So Lifeway Research, uh, which is the publishing arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, along with Ligonier Ministries, uh, which is a reformed media outlet uh, largely populated by Presbyterians, uh, they came together again this year uh, to release their biannual State of Theology findings. Uh, and so this is a report that provides a snapshot into what American Christians actually believe. 
Uh, and now, in order to really do this kind of research justice, you have to decide, well, what is an American Christian? And so they narrow down uh, the beliefs of a, an American Christian to the following four statements. So this is somebody who believes, one, that the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. Okay? Two, it is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Three, Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. And finally, four, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. Now, this is a pretty broad definition, but I think all of us would agree it's a pretty reasonable definition uh, that we could have in order to safely call somebody a Christian. And so here's, here's what they found. 67% of American Christians agree that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. So 67%, two-thirds of American Christians believe that Muslims who worship Allah, who do not believe Jesus is God, they believe that God is going to accept their worship ultimately. However, the scriptures tell us, Jesus himself says, that he and he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And that nobody comes to the Father except through him. That's John 14, 6. Also, 71% agree everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God, and 66% agree that everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Whereas we know from the scriptures that we are all conceived sinful. That's Psalm 51.5. And that there is no one who is good, no, not one. That's Romans 3.12. Moving on. 66% agree worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. But Hebrews 10.25 tells us that we must not give up assembling together as is the habit of some. Moving on, 60% agree religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. Again, Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by him. That's either a true statement or a false statement. It is, it is not in the realm of opinion. Moving on. 53% agree Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. There are several passages that we could cite that make it very clear that Jesus is God. However, John 1.1 1, 1 says Jesus is God. Moving on. 46% <clears throat> agree the Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior does not apply today. But the Bible tells us not to be deceived. Don't let... What prominent philosophy happens to exist in the day and age that you live deceive you. The homosexual, meaning the active, unrepentant homosexual, will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. And so these are huge 
huge percentages of people who claim the Bible as the highest authority for what they believe, and yet they deny teaching that is clear, that comes directly from Scripture, and that the historic Christian church has always believed. Now, to make it all worse, uh, the Arizona Christian University uh, recently came out with similar research about what pastors believe. Okay? 39% of evangelical pastors in the U.S. do not believe in absolute moral truth. They would say that each individual must determine their own moral truth. This number jumps up to 54% for Pentecostal pastors and 79% for Catholic priests. So if it were true that there really is no moral truth, that means we can disregard whatever commands we read in Scripture. And then I would actually push back that they don't actually believe in moral truth because if somebody steals their stuff or kills somebody that they love, they're going to believe in absolute moral truth in that moment. 34% of pastors believe good people can earn their salvation. That number climbs to 47% for Pentecostals and a shocking 77% for Catholic priests. 30% do not believe salvation is based on confessing sin and accepting Christ as Savior. That number goes up to 64% for Pentecostal pastors, but only 44% for Catholic priests. So in our passage this morning, Jesus looks out on the crowds, and what he sees is he sees people who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And as I, as I read these statistics, I see the same thing. I see people who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then we read the statistics about what the shepherds believe, and, and, and we can see exactly why this is the case. This was a problem in the Old Testament. It was a problem when Jesus walked the earth, and it is a problem now. God's people wandering around like sheep, lost, helpless, harassed, confused, and led by false teachers. And so this morning, we're going to see how Jesus directs his disciples to address this problem. So first, he identifies the problem, then he introduces the solution, and then he implements the plan. So first, he identifies the problem. So in Matthew chapters 1 through 4, we are introduced to King Jesus. And then in chapters 5 through 9, uh, the, the king, first in 5 through 7, uh, gives us authoritative teaching from his kingdom. And then in chapters 8 and 9, as we've just seen, he, he displays his kingly power and authority as he heals people and is in control over the storm, as he casts out demons. Uh, so we, uh, he has control over everything that we typically fear. Whether you can see it or whether you can't see it, Jesus is in total control over it. He is the king. And then in our passage, we read this. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And so here what Matthew is doing is he's summarizing everything that we've just seen in living color in Matthew 5 through 7, I'm uh, sorry, 5 through 9, 
And he's telling us that Jesus is now taking this out on the road to all of the towns and villages. Next, Matthew tells us why Jesus is doing this. He says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So Israel was God's people in the Old Testament. Uh, They were the church under age, as the Westminster Confession calls them. The scribes and the Pharisees and the priests, uh, they were supposed to be shepherding God's people, just like pastors and elders are to be shepherding God's people now. But they weren't. They weren't shepherding God's people. Just like our statistics tell us that pastors and elders are not shepherding God's people now. And so Jesus has compassion. He sees that they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The image of sheep without a shepherd is from the Old Testament. There are several places where God rebukes the religious leaders of Israel for failing to shepherd his flock. And one of the most powerful passages where he does this is found in Ezekiel chapter 34. And there we read this. This is what the Sovereign Lord says, Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. So God's people are harassed and helpless because they are like sheep without a shepherd. And they are sheep without shepherds because the people that he has called to be shepherds are only taking care of themselves. They're making sure that they have food to eat. They're making sure that they're comfortable. They're even making sure that they're making all the right sacrifices so that they can feel like they're okay with God. But what they're not doing is they're not going out and taking care of the sick and the weak and binding up their wounds. You see, to go to visit the sick and to care for God's people, it's not, it's not a matter of gifting if you're a shepherd. It's a, it's a calling. It is an obligation, a duty, and it ought to be a desire. Ezekiel goes on. He says, you have not brought back the strays or searched for the loss. You have ruled them harshly and brutally, so they are scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. So if someone wanders from the fold, what shepherds do is they leave the 99 and they go and they get the one. It doesn't matter why they left they left because of sin, if they left because of foolishness or apathy, it doesn't matter. Shepherds go, and they get the sheep, and they bring them back, but they don't do it harshly or brutally. They do it humbly, with kindness and with love, because if shepherds don't go after their sheep, guess what? They're vulnerable to wild animals, Ezekiel says. And the wild animal here, this is a picture of false teaching. 
This is the kind of teaching that God's people are vulnerable to that leads them to believe that, they, that God will accept any kind of worship and that they can live however they want, that there's no moral truths and all these kinds of things. Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 2, says this, talking about false teachers. But these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish. So Jesus looks out on the crowd, harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. The religious leaders, the the shepherds of Israel, have not given his people the knowledge of God they need to keep them from being vulnerable to false teachers. They've ruled them harshly. They've not cared for the sick or the injured. And so the people are just wandering around out there without knowledge, vulnerable to false teachers, consumed by their own needs and feelings and desires, rather than being consumed by the glory of God. And there's nothing new under the sun. When we read the statistics about what Christians in America believe and what shepherds in America believe, I think we're supposed to have compassion on the crowds because they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus goes on. Then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So here's where the problem is. God's people are ripe, they're ripe for the message of the kingdom. His people want to hear and to respond to the way of salvation. They long to hear about grace and forgiveness and the Holy Spirit who will come and live inside them making his home in their heart, giving them a heart of flesh, taking out their heart of stone, making them merciful because they've received mercy, causing them to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the problem is that there's not enough workers. There's not enough pastors and elders and evangelists who can teach the sheep and proclaim the good news of the kingdom and who will prove the truth of the message by living a life caring for the sick and the hurting and the injured. So next, Jesus introduces the solution. So the solution to the problem of harassed and helpless sheep without a shepherd begins with prayer. Jesus tells his disciples, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus says, pray. Pray. Speaking to every single one of his disciples that are gathered around him in this moment, Jesus says, pray. Pray to the one who sent his son into the world to save his people from their sins. Ask him to raise up workers who are willing and qualified and trained who will go into the harvest and bring in the flock of God. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. You might be thinking, oh good, all I have to do is pray. (laughs) Sweet. Kind of freaked out about being a worker.
Yes, praying is what we are all commanded to do. But praying is how we get invested into the work. Just so you know, praying that God will raise up workers for the harvest is how we start to wonder if maybe he's calling me to be a worker. And then if he's not calling me to be a worker, as we pray that he will raise up workers for the harvest, pretty soon what happens is instead of being kind of glad that he's not calling us to be a worker, all of a sudden we start to get kind of sad that he's not calling me to be a worker. And then as we're praying for him to raise up workers to the harvest, and and we're starting to become sad that he's not calling me to be a worker in the harvest, pretty soon we're praying for more workers in the harvest. Pretty soon we're investing our time and our money and our energy to help those workers in the harvest. Pretty soon we're becoming kind of a bit of a worker ourselves because we're sharing it with our neighbors and our friends at work, and, and it starts to consume us. This picture of harassed and helpless people who God loves, who are ripe for the message of the kingdom, right? Pretty soon, everywhere we go, we just see harassed and helpless people. And so, so we just start praying all the time. It becomes like, it becomes the, the cry of our heart. So don't be misled. This kind of praying is dangerous, risky work. And every one of us in this room is called to it. And next, out of this group of disciples that Jesus tells to pray for workers, he chooses a group to be workers, to go into the harvest and proclaim the message. At the beginning of chapter 10, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. First, notice that he he calls twelve. Now, if you know anything about the history of the Jews, twelve men called to start something should point us back to the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 sons of Jacob. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's laying down the foundation of the church. Paul will later tell us in Ephesians chapter 2 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And here Jesus is laying that foundation with his 12 apostles The church is the restored Israel. An apostle just means sent one. So to be an apostle of Jesus is to be someone sent by Jesus himself. And the group Jesus chooses to send, the group Jesus calls to be the foundation of the church, is a group of blue-collar fishermen, a tax collector, who was a traitor to his own people, a zealot who was a political revolutionary along the lines of the Proud Boys or Antifa, if you're familiar with those terms, 
and then a bunch of obscure people that no one knows anything about, and Judas, who will ultimately betray him, leading to his death on the cross. Hardly the group that any of us would choose as the foundation of the church. And then notice he gives them authority. So Jesus had authority in himself when he went out and taught and proclaimed the message. Jesus healed on the basis of his own authority. And now here he gives his authority to his apostles, and this is what this means. The church does not have its own authority. Whatever authority the church has comes to it from Jesus through his word, and by the Spirit. This is why we must know the word of God as he reveals himself in it. We must conform our thoughts and our mind to his word rather than try and conform his word to what seems right to us because his word is how he speaks to us authoritatively now. So Jesus calls all of his disciples to pray. The Lord of the harvest will send out workers. And then he sends out workers to proclaim the message. Next, Matthew is going to tell us that these workers are also to prove the truth of the message by their deeds of healing. We read, These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. So Jesus gives them clear instructions. They are to go to the lost sheep of Israel. And as they go, they're to proclaim the message, the same exact message that Jesus has been proclaiming. They're to prove the truthfulness of that message by healing and raising the dead and driving out demons. Just like Jesus has been doing. So this is how it works. After Jesus fulfills the promises and the prophecies made to Israel, which is why he's only going to the lost sheep of Israel right now, after, after that, and then after his death and resurrection, this message goes out to the entire world. And then after the apostles die and the powerful miracles of healing and raising the dead, then they will cease. But the basic pattern here stays exactly the same throughout the church age. God's people are to pray that he will raise up workers for the harvest. Those workers are to go and proclaim the good news and then prove the truthfulness of the message by caring for the weak and the sick and the injured. This is how it works. And so as Christians, we must do both. We have to proclaim the message because, as Paul says, the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. But if all we do is go and share the gospel with people and we don't come alongside them and love them and care for them, then that message loses its power. It becomes less believable. And we all know this is true. If, if somebody comes and talks about heaven and you can't eat, their message about heaven, it just doesn't matter. But on the other end, if all we do is go and care for people's physical needs without sharing the gospel, what good is that? 
What does it matter if someone has a little bit more comfortable life this side of heaven, but they don't have eternal salvation in Jesus? So finally, Jesus implements the plan. So if the problem is a plentiful harvest full of harassed and helpless sheep with no shepherd, and the solution is praying to God to raise up people to bring in the harvest who will proclaim the message and prove the truth of that message by caring for the weak, visiting the sick, binding up the injured, now Jesus is going to go on and actually throughout the whole of chapter 10 tell us how to do that. So first, uh, the last sentence of verse 8, he says this, Freely you have received, freely give. So the message of the gospel is free. We must not charge for it. We must not seek to get rich from what God has freely given us. The healing and restoration that comes from life in the kingdom and that we receive from true shepherds should be free If we charge for it, we change it. As soon as we charge for something that's a free gift, all of a sudden, it's not a free gift. It becomes something fundamentally different than what it is. Jesus goes on. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff for the worker is worth his keep. So for this particular mission, Jesus sends them out without any supplies. Why? Well, because they're duplicating Jesus' ministry here, and that's how Jesus went out, without supplies. But the enduring principle is that the worker is worth his keep. So even though the message is freely given and freely received, the worker is still worth his keep. The worker should not charge for the message, but those who receive and benefit from the message ought to take care of the worker. This is why a church should support the work of pastors and missionaries and evangelists. Then Jesus says, Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. So here Jesus makes a distinction between a worthy person and an unworthy person, or a deserving town uh, and home, or an undeserving town and home. And actually that word translated worthy and that word translating deserving are the exact same word in Greek. I'm not sure why uh, they chose to translate them differently here, but it's the same word. And an unworthy person is one who does not receive the message. Okay? So the worth of a person is their willingness to welcome the apostles and listen to their words. So these people are not earning their salvation by being worthy. They become worthy when they receive salvation as a free gift offered to them in the message of the apostles. So their worthiness is not the cause, it's the result. Does that make sense? Like they're, they're, not, they're not these worthy great people and because the disciples find these worthy people, they give them the message. No, they're, they're just like you and me, fools who desperately need someone to tell us the truth. And then when we receive the truth and God opens our eyes 
to see the, the wonder and the beauty and the grace and the mercy of what he's done for us in Christ, we become worthy as a result of what God has already done in our hearts, enabling us to receive the message. And notice, Jesus doesn't want them to spend a lot of time trying to persuade people to believe who don't want to believe. In fact, he tells them to shake the dust off their feet. This, uh, this is a saying that came from when Jews would travel outside of uh, the boundaries of Israel into Gentile territory. And when they would come back into Israel, they would shake off the impure dirt from the Gentile lands. And so when Jesus applies this saying to his disciples here, who are only to go to the lost sheep of Israel, what he's saying is that if somebody doesn't receive the message, you are to treat them as a Gentile. Why? Well, that takes us to one of the most frightening verses in Scripture. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on that day of judgment than for that town. Oh, well, Sodom and Gomorrah, well, they were so evil because of their sexual immorality and their refusal to take care of the poor and the needy. They were so evil that God literally rained down fire and brimstone. That's where that, that saying comes from, is because of what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, and destroys them. And Jesus is saying here that the town or the home that rejects the message of the disciples is going to be worse off on the day of judgment than even Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Why would that be? And the reason is, is because we are responsible to respond to the light that we have been given. So the more that we understand the grandeur of the gospel and the glory of God and his absolute holiness and our utter sinfulness and his immense mercy and grace that he offers to us in Christ and Christ's amazing sacrifice where he bears the wrath of God in our place and he takes the fire and brimstone of judgment from God for us and that we are found in him protected and safe and forgiven, right? When, when we see and hear that message and we reject that, that is worthy of more judgment and condemnation than even what Sodom and Gomorrah were worthy of. So it is both a immense privilege to hear and understand the gospel. And it is a deep, deeply fearful thing to reject it. Finally, Jesus says, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves, therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. So notice two things about this. Jesus sends them into danger. So when we're praying for God to raise up workers to go out into the harvest, we're, we're praying for him to raise up people who will go out into danger. When I think about my son or my daughter wanting to be a missionary or wanting to do something wonderful for God, I, I, I actually want that 
for them, if that would be what God calls them to. But then I immediately think, yeah, but then I don't want them to move away from me, and I don't want them to go out into danger, and, and all that, right? But then I think to myself, well, you know what? This life is a mist. It's a mist. It's here today and then gone the next moment. And eternity is forever. And how wonderful it would be to spend eternity with people who I didn't get to spend as much time with on this earth as I longed to, but who because of what God called them to were used as tools in his hand to bring many sons to glory. And I think to myself, that will be worth it. That will be better. The other thing to notice is he tells them to go out wisely, like a snake, and then to go out with a righteous life, like a dove. The Apostle Peter says this. He says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, so you're living a good life and they're accusing you of doing wrong, but live such a good life that even if they do that, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Friends, the harassed and the helpless. Like as I, as I read those statistics this week, and I find it just amazing that I'm preaching this sermon and that God brings those statistics into my world this week. That to me is not a coincidence. But as I think about those statistics and I think about what can we as Emmanuel Church do to help? And I think to myself, well, it's clear, we, we need to pray. Every Sunday that somebody comes to this pulpit, I'm challenging you as the prayer leaders. Every Sunday that somebody comes to this pulpit, from now on, we should be praying that God will raise up workers for the harvest. Every single one of us should pray, right? Because I, I don't, if, there were times in my life, I remember when I first, when I was 14 years old, and I first really clearly was like, okay, God, if I believe the gospel, he's going to want me to do something. I remember when I understood that for the first time. And I thought, well, I don't, don't want to do that. I don't want him to send me to Africa as a missionary. I don't want any of that stuff. So I'm just not going to follow Jesus. That's what I decided, right? And that feeling of not wanting to do what God is calling me to do, that haunts me still today because there's constantly new levels of of putting to death my sin and, and walking in obedience that, he, that he's calling me to do, right? But the thing about it is, there, there's two kind of reactions to that. What, one is to say like, oh no, I'm going to dig in my heels, I'm not going to do it. La 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 la. The other reaction is just to say, yes, I know that is good. And so I will pray. And here Jesus is very explicit. He, he's not even saying like, I'm definitely calling you to be a worker. No, he's just saying to all of his disciples, Pray. Pray that the, that the Lord of the harvest, right, he calls him the Lord of the harvest, meaning the harvest is the thing that he is Lord over and that he cares about. Pray to him that he'll raise up workers. So let's do that. Let's pray that he'll raise up workers. And then I'm confident that as we pray this prayer, that he will raise up workers, right, that he'll begin to move some of us to be workers. He'll call some to be elders in this church who maybe thought that they would never be an elder in this church. 
He will call us to go and to do things that we never thought we would do. And then others of us, he, he will burden us, right, for the workers, even though he's clearly called us to be teachers or attorneys or whatever else he calls us to be. He'll burden us so much for the workers that, that all of a sudden our prayers and our finances and all of these things will start to move in that direction. And then as these workers go out, right, and, and they, they do it properly, they do, do it how Jesus calls us to do it here, by teaching and proclaiming, and then healing and caring for, right, authenticating the message. That, that, this is how it happens. We live ordinary Christian lives. We pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers. And then we just get this kind of, in some ways, just sit back and, and watch what he does. I don't know about you, but I long to see that. And I know that I can pray that he'll raise up workers for the harvest. Because the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. And the crowds are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. And, and this message lands on us so differently depending on our age, our stage of life, our, our maturity and our faith. And yet, Father, we can all pray that you will raise up workers for the harvest. We can all begin to let you form and shape our desires and our feelings and our emotions by that prayer. And then, Father, I believe we all long to see what you will do with that simple prayer. We long to be um, part of seeing Many sons come to glory, seeing the harassed and helpless crowds come to find rest and peace in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.